0: This is Stu Jackson of Everything Basketball. It's good to be back with you on our sixth episode of this podcast. And once again, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. We're going to go through a variety of different subjects uh, today. Uh, First, I want to talk a little bit about none other than Sharif Abdur Rahim. Then I'd like to talk about my very bad relationship with the three-point shot. And next, do a little bit of a follow-up on the Joel Embiid and Jimmy Butler trade. Some interesting things that I uh, wanna get into there, and then finish it up with some miscellaneous items around the league. But first, on Sharif Abdul-Rahim, You know, I was sitting here uh, this evening, it's been a little bit of a, uh, a bittersweet day in that um, today would have been my mother's 85th birthday unfortunately uh, my mother passed away on her 80th birthday exactly five years from today that's right she passed away on her birthday her 80th birthday so it's been a little bit of a uh, celebration and yet uh, a little bit melancholy and that all went out the window. I just received a call from none other than Sharif Abdul Rahim. Uh, Sharif and I have a history that dates back to 1996 uh, when at the time I was the president of the Vancouver Grizzlies and I drafted Sharif uh, to the Grizzlies following his freshman year at the uh, University of Cal in Berkeley. Uh, he was the real cornerstone of the expansion franchise in Vancouver. Uh, and I reflected back after hanging up from his call about why I drafted him. Uh, he was a very talented forward, about 6'9", Play a little bit inside, play a little bit outside. Uh, he was young at the time, so I was basically drafting him on his potential, but more importantly, reflecting back, I drafted him also on his character. Uh, I thought that personally, he was a type of player that was not only talented enough, but the type of person that could withstand the rigors of the NBA and all that came with it. And uh, certainly he didn't disappoint. Uh, He had a great career. Uh, not only with the Grizzlies, uh, eventually he was traded to the Atlanta Hawks, and then eventually uh, traded to the Portland Trail Blazers, and then signed with the Sacramento Kings as a free agent, and uh, ended his career uh, in 2009. Uh, during that time, he also was a gold medal a gold medalist in the Olympics in Australia, uh, and just his growth as a player, his growth as a man, has always been a source of admiration for me, as he's been like a little brother to me, and I couldn't be prouder you know, of his NBA career. But in 2010, he became the assistant general manager under Jeff Petrie, uh, one of the best GMs, at least in my opinion, that the NBA has seen. And, you know, it's funny and a really indication of who Sharif is as you begin to understand who he is. When he became the assistant general manager uh, in Sacramento, uh, Jeff Petrie allowed him to also, uh, some evenings and, and on weekends, travel back and forth from Sacramento, California, back to Berkeley to finish up his undergrad degree at the University of California, which he did. Then in 2000, I guess it was probably 14, uh, he ended his stint with the Sacramento uh, Kings following an ownership change. And at that point, went to uh, USC to receive his master's uh, in business. Um, all this is great, great work by him and a real testament to his work, work ethic, his perseverance and his desire to, um, you know, enhance himself. But, you know, that that's of no surprise. I mean, he, I like the kid, Sharif, about his ability to overachieve. And certainly he, he did that uh, in picking his wife, Didi. Uh, they both now have three children, uh, the oldest of which is Jabri, who himself looks like he's headed for a great Uh, basketball career. So the reason I'm telling you all this is one, in an effort to just share a personal story with me, but also to let you know that on December the 11th, 2018, which is my birthday and coincidentally also Sharif Abdul Rahim's birthday, Sharif is going to be named the president of the NBA's G League a great accomplishment. The NBA couldn't have picked a better man and I'm sure that he will do a great job. So happy birthday to Sharif and all the best in your new position as the president of the NBA's G League. One thing I can say about Sharif is that uh, it's a relationship that I have cherished and I will always cherish. And It's such a happy note as I segue into this next subject, which is a very unhappy relationship that I have, and that is with basketball's three-point shot. Um, I've struck once again and hit in the face with it, actually, because this is something that we talked about on one of our previous podcasts, but this past week, I read a quote Uh, by none other than Greg Popovich, who for many of us basketball purists and pundits is somewhat of a basketball guru and also a social guru as well, just given his view and his voices on social issues in the United States as a prominent man in the game of basketball. And he's somebody I've always admired and continue to admire, but listen, he brought it up. Okay, talking about the three-point shot, and, and I quote, he said, these days, are such an, there's such an emphasis on the three because it's proven to be analytically correct. Now, you look at a stat sheet after a game, and the first thing you look at is the threes. If you made threes and the other team didn't, you win. You don't even look at the rebounds or turnovers or how much transition D was involved. You don't even care. That's how much of an impact a three-point shot has and is evidenced by how everybody plays. He went on to say there's no basketball anymore. There's no beauty in it. It's pretty boring. But it is what it is, and you need to work with it. You know, as you watch Greg Popovich's teams uh, with the Spurs play over the years, they've never... Focused or evolved into a style of focusing their offense on the three-point shot. And this is evidenced by the fact, I mean, the Spurs this year, by example, ranked 29th, basically second to last in the NBA, and the number of threes attempted at about 24 and a half per game. And they're also next to last in the number of made threes in a game at 9.4. Now, the interesting part about it, which really speaks to the value of the three-point shot and how the Spurs utilize it, they're third in the league in three-point shooting percentage at about 38%, which tells you while he's not a big proponent of the three-point shot, uh, he's also not crazy and utilizes it, but he seems to make the three-point shot at a very efficient level. The other thing that, you know, you listen to Popovich over the past months, he's also been a little bit aghast, uh, not being able to necessarily do anything about it at this point, but he's not been very happy about the way the traditional big men seemingly are being phased out of the game. Uh, And on that point, uh, I happen to share his angst Um, and and agree with him totally. I mean, listen, this is nothing you haven't heard from me before. Uh, The three-point shot has become more and more popular in in today's NBA. Uh, This season, we've looked at some astonishing numbers. The average NBA team shoots roughly 31 three-point shots per game, about two more than last season. And dating back, you know, nine seasons ago, they're up 13 more made threes per game. So it's pretty safe to say, in some ways, it's really taken over the sport. And it's not only at the NBA level, it's happening in college, it's happening in high school, it's happening globally. But the three point shot for, and yes, I'll say it, I'm a basketball purist, not ashamed to say it, it's okay. But there's something that's always gnawed at me about the three-point shot because I can't figure out always why I don't like it as much as I do. So I've been on this quest to, you know, find out and listen to others and you know, look at the analysts and listen to other people talk about the three-point shot in an attempt to understand what bothers me so much about the shot and the way it's utilized in our game today. So I came across an article uh, by an NBA basketball insider and analyst, uh, Tom Haberstro who I respect a, a lot, who broke down some numbers and, you know, got behind the myth of the three-point shot in an article this past week called Lies, Damn Lies and Statistics, the Confusing Analytics of the NBA's Three-Point obsession and what Tom did is he started to look at some of the reasons why or their key data why NBA teams win games and what he found was surprising and some of it not so surprising for instance you know the most important stat in a traditional box score he found was field goal percentage all of us basketball can rejoice. Yay! Because what he found out, and it's a little bit intuitive, if you shoot better from the floor than your opponent, you're probably going to win the game. In fact, teams so far this season are 246-69, and 69, are winning 78% of their games when they win the field goal percentage column on a box score. Now, all you really old school coaches and basketball purists, you want to sit down for this next fact. As Tom points out, the team that won the defensive rebound battle is the next most likely to win games. In the NBA this year, teams are 225-71 and or winning at a 76% when they win the battle on the defensive boards. And if you aren't convinced about that, just look at some of the league's top defensive rebounding teams like Milwaukee, the Clippers, Philadelphia, and Portland, all in the upper echelon of the standings this season. Now, contrary to belief in how much of a focused three-point shooting it is, it's actually just plain old field goals made that are more important than the three-point shot. Teams are 225 and 72 or win it you know, 75.8% of their games when they take more free throws than their opponent. And then if all these facts aren't enough, field goal percentage, defensive rebounding, taking more shots, As we find out, or as Thomas found out, assists, rebounds, and two-point field goal percentage are still more tied to the win column than three-pointers made. So, what all this means when you talk about all these areas, field goal percentage, defensive rebounds, more attempts, assists, rebounds, and two-point field goal percentage, It makes you ask yourself, what's the obsession with the three point shot? Because it appears from this type of data that the three point shot isn't all that and it's not the end all. But why are people like myself, people like Greg Popovich and all the basketball purists out there who have watched the game for many years, why are we we upset? When, when newbies to the game and fans all around the world love the shot. I mean, it is an exciting shot. Arguably the most exciting shot in the game next to a dunk. It's helped the NBA flourish and that is a, a style of play that's undeniable and undeniably been good for the game. But here's the reason why. Part of it has to do about the aesthetics of the game. And the fact that the game itself, because it's become such a focal point and the spacing of the game has led to a drive and kick type of game and added what I would call a real boring and homogenous look to the game. We're in an era where line spacing is dictating the game. Opening up the floor for drives to the basket, dribble handoffs, dribble penetration to a drive and kick basketball, pick and roll basketball, all that has taken over the game to a point where many NBA teams play the same. Uh, Take out San Antonio, take out the Memphis Grizzlies. So aesthetics is one reason that we're not that... Happy about the three-point shot and where it's taking the game. The second reason is big men are totally being taken out of the game in the classic sense that we know NBA big men. Because of, in some cases, their inability to defend smaller guards on the perimeter and, perim- and, and prohibit drives to the basket and prohibit three-point shots, that they're unable to play and then also there's this perception that inside baskets or baskets in the paint are not as productive because mathematically they're not as efficient the game today is no longer dominated by guys who were born to be super tall there's no will Chamberlain out there or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or even a George Mikan I wonder if Shaq could play today Out on the perimeter in today's game, there's no Bill Russell, no Patrick Ewing, no Hakeem Olajuwon, and kukukachu, Mr. Robinson, basketball loves you more than you will know. I mean, the only big man I see out there that maybe has a chance to be that sort of throwback player is Joel Embiid from the Philadelphia 76ers, but time will tell. Now the best players in the league are the smaller guys. You know, the Steph Currys, the Kemba Walkers, the Damian Lilliards of the world. And as well as we've got this combination of big guys trying to be small guys. I mean, do you realize that Sunday night in the Milwaukee Bucks at Toronto Raptors game that Brooke Lopez and Serge Ibaka Combined for 9 for 17 from 3. And get this both players led their respective teams in three point attempts for the evening. That's blasphemous. So, Brooke Lopez, in particular, has basically reinvented himself into a perimeter 7 foot 2 guard. I mean, one of the knocks on Brooks early on in his career was the fact that, you know, he didn't have that disposition to really dominate the paint from a rebounding standpoint and a shot blocking standpoint. And I guess what's happened is he's gravitated to what he does best because he could always shoot the basketball. And now he's become one of the better front court perimeter shooting big men in the game. So big men are out of it. It does you know, the game has changed the aesthetics of the game. And then you get into this whole analytic efficiency number game, which has become appealing for teams, and the fact that, as I mentioned, the shot is appealing for fans. I mean, listen, it is true. On any given night, if you go 10 for 30 from the three-point line, it's the same as shooting 15 of 30 from the two-point line, or inside the three-point line from two. It's the same scoring on less less makes, so I guess everybody says, why not? It makes sense. And this whole notion of working for a higher percentage shot inside the three-point line has taken on a feeling that it's almost a waste of time. You can just do more with less. But it's really come at the expense of the beauty of the game in my mind. There's very little post play. There's not as much cutting to the basket in an effort to get layups. Offenses that get mid-range shots have fallen by the wayside. And all of this at the expense of variety in our game. So in lieu of the achievable numbers gained by shooting threes off of pick and pops and pick and rolls with a pitch out to the three-point line, fast-breaking wings that space the floor out to the three-point line, ball reversals, and corner threes. In lieu of all that, this is what we get, is a three-point shooting game. And that's really what I think, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, what I think Greg Popovich is referring to when he speaks about the homogenous boredom of the game. So, listen, I get it. As long as fans enjoy this type of basketball and Steph Curry is atop the apparel you know, charts globally the three point shot is here to stay it's great for business but I'm going to finish up this segment and on something that was really an epiphany for me this week regarding the three point shot said by someone that's a lot smarter than I am but it was a great great quote And it has to do, once again, with Steve Kerr and the Golden State Warriors. And look, don't blame the Warriors for the three-point shot. Don't do it. Don't fall into that trap. Because right now, the Warriors are currently ranked 19th in three-point attempts at 29.5. So you can't say, well, this is all due to the Warriors. And after hearing this quote that I'm about to to say by Steve Kerr. You'll understand why. Steve Kerr said this. He said, my number one priority is always an open shot rather than a particular type of shot. I don't care about how many threes we take. What I care about is great shots. I want to get really good open shots. It doesn't matter if they're from three or they're from two. I want them to be good ones and in rhythm. But here's the kicker. He says, I'm not convinced math is everything. I'd rather go six for 12 from two and have the other team take the ball out of the net six times than four for 12 from three and have to deal with eight fast breaks. Wow, that's it. That's really the essence of why I don't like the three-point shot. And it sort of, cap- it, you know, it captures what's wrong with a steady diet of threes. I got my coach hat on because I don't want to defend fast breaks. It's the toughest scheme in, offensive scheme in basketball to defend. So, okay, I've gone on and on. I've been critical of the three-point shot. What's the solution? I mean, the solution is much shorter. Just alter the line. Take away the corner three so that it will incentivize teams to play more in the mid-range, to get that variety back in the game. Just take the line and cut it off at 23.9. Take away the corner three. And just have an arc that goes around the top of the key. Or you could alter the timing on when a three-point shot counts. Maybe you only get to score a three-point goal in the last two minutes of a period or a half or at the end of the game or the overtime. And I think that is a solution of bringing back our game that we love with variety and post-ups and mid-range and getting rid of this homogenous game that we know today. Okay, just want to follow up on a couple more items. First is the Joel Embiid Jimmy Butler recap just to bring you up to date because it's still a topic that I think uh, concerns a lot of basketball fans and one that has been in the media over the past couple weeks. Everybody's watching. Uh, the Sixers right now, since the trade, are nine and three. Minnesota is eight and four since the trade. Uh, the interesting part about that, Philadelphia is a playoff team, Minnesota is not, but they're only one game out of the playoffs. If you look at Minnesota's offensive rating, they're 17th in the league since the trade. They're 3rd in the league in defensive rating since the trade. And 7th overall in the NBA in net rating. Offensive minus their defensive rating. 7th. Philadelphia, on the other hand, is 8th in offensive rating. They have gotten better. No question with Jimmy Butler. They are 13th, however, in defensive rating While Minnesota sits at third, and their net rating, the Sixers that is, is ninth at 4.2. So, you can't look at just the numbers. You also have to look at a little bit who they've played. And, you know, since the trade, Philadelphia's played five playoff teams during that stretch. Minnesota has played six playoff teams during that 12-game stretch. So there's a loose case to be made here, and if nothing else, certainly worth watching, that Minnesota may have benefited more from the trade than Philadelphia did. Now, why do I say that? Well, part of it is the eye test. Minnesota is playing with renewed vigor. Their body language is better. Their chemistry seems to be better. Covington, who they got in the trade from Philadelphia, has played great defense for them, which in large part may be one of the major reasons why they're third in defensive rating since the trade. He's been terrific. And I argue if he if he didn't play and he didn't play on Saturday against Portland, maybe if he did, they win that game. And actually, you know, their record would be the same as Philadelphia. Carl Anthony Towns is back to playing at an all star level. His numbers aren't that drastically better. He's averaging about a point more per game, about half a rebound more per game, uh, about the same number of assists. But the the energy and leadership that he's exhibiting once again is evident on the floor. Butler, on the other hand, has been great for Philadelphia, particularly late in games. He already has two game winners. But their roster, as we mentioned before, has thinned. And I wonder why, you know, you don't hear uh, the Philadelphia 76ers Uh, being a part of the Trevor Ariza sweepstakes since that he's been placed on the trading block by the Phoenix Suns. Uh, They should be. bottom line is, we've mentioned before, Philadelphia needs to get a little bit deeper. But I was particularly struck by the fact this also is happening after the trade, and a few days ago, Joel Embiid seemed to vent some of his frustration about the way he's being utilized. Uh, for the Sixers since the trade. Uh, There was an article written by Keith uh, Pompey. uh, We're doing an an interview with the Philadelphia Inquirer. uh, Joel Embiid was quoted as saying, I haven't been myself lately. I love when people say, I haven't been myself lately. I think it's mainly because of the way I'm being used, which is I'm being used as a spacer. I guess a stretch five which I'm only shooting 29%, he's referring to the three-point line. But it seems like the past couple games, like with the way I play, our setup by Coach Brown always has me starting on the perimeter and it just really frustrates me. My body feels great, Mm, little qualifier, and it's just I haven't been playing as well. So in that quote, he's almost implying that some things have changed for him. But when you look down deeper into the numbers, um, it hasn't really changed as much as he's implying. I mean, his scoring and field goal percentage are down since the trade. That's true. But his usage rate is the same around 31%. He's received uh, more touches and more passes than in games alongside Jimmy Butler than he did before the trade when they had Covington. Embiid has averaged more paint touches. Get this, more paint touches. So he's not necessarily being used as a spacer, more paint touches than he was prior to the trade. Here's the issue, Joel. You are more, excuse me, you are less efficient as a player since the trade. Now, fans out there, you may wonder why I think it's because Joel Embiid is fatigued. It's the first time in his career that he's played this many minutes. He's averaging 34.3 minutes per game, which is four minutes more at any other point in his career. The guy is fatigued. He's hit a little bit of a mini wall after 24 games or so. 25 games. He needs some rest. Take care of his body. No doubt that he'll bounce bounce back. Joel Embiid is one of the best players in the NBA and arguably could be a serious MVP candidate by the end of the year. But Joel, acknowledge it's not the coach. It's not Jimmy. It's you. You'll bounce back. You're a great player. Knock out the excuses. Keep your head to the grindstone, defend like hell, and try to become more efficient. Pulling for you as one Sixer fan to another. Just a few miscellaneous comments before we end this uh, podcast. And again, uh, in advance, thank you so much for listening. This has been a lot of fun. Wanted to comment on a couple things, though. MVP race. Who is it for you? Is it LeBron, Steph, Kawhi, Giannis, Embiid, or Durant? Well, my thinking is it's the best player on the best team in the NBA, Kawhi, without a doubt, Leonard, MVP in my book. But, you know, I'm falling into that trap once again. The MVP should be LeBron. There's no question about it. We've seen this before. LeBron taking a a group of players, oftentimes young group, and elevating them to a level that they haven't seen. He's doing that with the Lakers. They're in fifth place right now. I have no doubt that, you know, they'll probably become uh, a team that gets home court advantage. Although I will say early on, I predicted that they wouldn't reach that high in the playoffs. It seems that they are. Can't doubt the man. The guy is great. Um, another little tidbit. The Grizzlies signing Joaquin Noah. Love that addition to the Grizzlies and the Grizzlies are grinding along once again in the grindhouse again headed for playoff home court advantage who would have thunk it nobody before the season Mike Conley arguably one of my favorite point guards in the NBA once again same efficient way Marcus Saul we know what he brings to the table defensively offensively adding Noah is gonna allow him to play less minutes I love that signing uh third note hey, how about the 11-0 run Luka Doncic had against Houston the other night? After having a very poor night, I mean, it's amazing to me what this young man's going to be, especially when he gets a summer or two under his belt and his body begins to change and get better. What we're seeing here is like a dual hit. We have arguably the greatest international player ever to play in the NBA on the same team and Dirk Nowitzki, we could be headed for looking at the next great international player in the NBA in Luka Doncic. And I want to end up with one of my favorite guys, Boogie Cousins. He's coming back. Boogie started practicing with the G League team, Santa Cruz Warriors, uh, and will be cleared to play soon with the Santa Cruz Warriors. We look forward to seeing Boogie uh, back with the Warriors into the new year. Can't wait for that and to see what the Golden State Warriors will be. Uh, That ends this rendition of Everything Basketball. I hope you have enjoyed it. I certainly have, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. All right, take care.